from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. This morning, it is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And like I said, several things are coming together today. And so we are going to spend some time looking at the sanctity of, of life. And we're going to dive into that in, in just a couple minutes. But before we do, I, I want to do something I don't usually do with my messages, and that's I, I want to, to make three, I think, preliminary remarks, okay? Number one, when we talk about the sanctity of life and we talk about abortion, it is emotional. It, it, it just is, okay? And as much as, as emotional as it is, we are also as believers called to think clearly about what God's Word has said. And I say that because there are times when we need to make sure that we do not let our emotions impact what we know. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you can just set it aside. I'm saying it's difficult, and sometimes we have to do that. And this morning may be one of those mornings. Number two, I want to say that sanctity of life encompasses everything from abortion to euthanasia and everything in between. We think of it in terms of abortion, and that is correct, but there is so much more, and we're going to dive into that this morning. Number three, it's a political issue. You can't escape it. However, as believers, we need to be mindful of this. Our political beliefs must be framed through a biblical and Christocentric worldview. We cannot do it the other way around. Our political views do not impact our Christianity and our view of Scripture. And that goes for any political party. That is not a left or a right, a R or a D. That is any political party, anything. And in fact, it's not just politics. Everything that we look and we come in contact with and we think through must be filtered through a Christ-centered worldview. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then number four, yeah, I can't count. Uh, number four, I, I want this to be the last thing you hear, and it is this. The issues that, that, that we are facing now and, and, and the issues of abortion and all of that that it creates. What I want to remind us of this morning before we start is the gospel. Because it is the gospel that says that we are all sinners. Not some of us, not many, not most, not a few, but all. We all are sinners. We all stand before a holy God having violated His law. Sometime this week, you have lied. You have took, taken something that, that did not belong to you. You have perhaps gossiped about someone. You have maybe been mad at someone and encouraged the police to pull them over. I don't know if that last one's a sin, but that's my Sunday that's that's my Sunday school connection. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's 
glory. And because of that, we are eternally separated from God. And were it not for God stepping out of heaven without his initiative and without his action, that is where we would remain. But because we read Psalm 8 that said he thinks highly of us, that we are crowned with glory, and that he, we are, he is mindful of us, he made a way. And that way is through Jesus Christ, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but stepped out of heaven so that he could be a servant, a slave, and that he would go to the cross for our salvation. Fully man, fully God, redeeming us from our sinful actions. And the gospel says that in, the go- in, in that, we see the immensity of God's grace. Every one of us needs God's grace. And God's grace is so vast and so deep and so unfathomable that there is not a sin that God's grace cannot overwhelm. I know that as believers, we rank sins. We do. I know that when you go through Scripture, some sins carry a higher penalty than others. However, there is no sin. There is no sin. One more time. There is no sin that God's grace cannot overcome. And so as we look at the sanctity of life this morning, please remember the gospel as we go through this. So as we we think about this and we spend some time, I I want you to notice just three truths about the sanctity of life. And I'm coming at it. Y'all should know me by now. I usually come at things a little bit differently. And so I'm going to come at it a little bit differently this morning. We're going to spend most of our time on the second point, but there are three that I want you to notice. And the first one is this. The sanctity of life is derived from God's holiness. We need to ask the question, and I guess all three of these answer the question, why is life sacred? Why does life have a sanctity to it? And it is because it is derived from God's holiness. And this has got to be our starting point. We've got to go here. This morning in Sunday school, we were in Genesis 3, but in our message, we're going to go back even before Genesis 3 to Genesis 1 and 2, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Those two verses over and over, we see the words created and image, created and image, created and image. Drawing our attention to something that it was uniquely different in the creation of man and woman that was not present in the rest of the creation week. We know, and Scripture testifies, that God made everything that we see and can't see. Every star in the sky to ever smallest part of the smallest atom that exists, God created. Every bird that flies, every, and I love this, every creeping thing that creeps. Thank God for spiders. 
everything God created. But then when he gets to the last day, to the sixth day, he creates something different. He creates man and woman, and with man and woman, he says, we are going, going to create them. The, the, there we have the image of the Trinity and the majesty of God. We're going to create them and give them dominion over all the earth. Up until that point, no part of creation was given dominion. But here God says man and woman will rule over the earth. And so we see then two distinct differences. And the first one is, is back to that word image. Image. Man and woman and no other part of creation is created in the image of God. No one. Nothing. What does that mean? When we think of the image of God, what, what, what are we, we really thinking about? Well, one of the, the, the key perfections of God, and, and if you, I hope you're joining with me on Wednesday night. We're studying knowing the God we worship, and we're looking at God's perfections. And I've, I've, I've made it a point to say that God is not a, a sum of all his perfections like a jigsaw puzzle. We take the piece of holiness, and, and we put it with the piece of righteousness, and then we put it with the, the piece of grace and the piece of mercy. And once we take all the pieces, we, we have God. No, no, God is 100%. He, he is all his perfections at once. So it is, it is difficult to say that one perfection exists be, above the others, but when you look at it, it's hard not to go, and many commentators and theologians through the, the ages have said, his holiness is, is just different. There's something about the perfection of his holiness. Isaiah, you know well, in Isaiah chapter 6, looking at God and says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Almighty. God is holy. And when we think about holiness, the root word there is, 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 is sacred. And we get our word sanctity and our word sanctified. And it means to be set apart. So God in His holiness is, is set apart. There is something in God's holiness that makes Him uniquely different from everything else. And it says, it is in that image that we are created. Nothing else in creation bears that Im image. Yes, creation reveals God's glory. We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. But even in revealing God's glory, the mountain is not made in the image of God. Every one of you sitting here today, every person who has ever been born, who ever will be born, is made in the image of God. And because of that, human life is different. It has a sanctity about it. It has a set-apartness about it that nothing else does. And we need to understand that this is Every single life, no exceptions, bears the image of God. But through the years, one of the things that has happened that is absolutely stunning as we think about this is that the human dignity argument has shifted 
from not the, what not does does life have dignity, but to what life has dignity. Because it becomes a stunning statement that says, if we ask the question, what life has dignity, then that implies that there are certain lives that do not have dignity. And if you get to a point where life stops having dignity, stops being, has this sacredness, this sanctity about it that is derived from God, then you have people in society who are not productive. And, and that leads, ladies and gentlemen, to some very bad places. And, and we, we need to recognize that. We need to recognize and state clearly because the secular worldview says that dignity is something then that can be obtained and can be lost. And we stand up and say, no. We say, no. That human dignity, human sacredness, the sanctity of life unequivocally is not something which is obtained and thus can be lost, we state that the sanctity of life is derived from God's holiness that sets him apart, and at the day that he created us, he set us apart too, and we have dignity. We have a sanctity of life that is derived straight from God himself, and that no one can take that away. You can take away a lot from a lot of people, but you cannot take away the image of God in a person. Secondly, the sanctity of life flows from God's life. Throughout Scripture, again, we are told God is life. John 5, 26, whereas the Father has life in Himself. John 1, 4, in Him was life. When we understand this, we understand that God's life then is not dependent on something outside of Himself. He is life. Not only is He life, the, the giver of life, He is the sustainer of life. You read throughout Scripture again. You go to Isaiah 40, 26, and the strong power of God holds the stars in place. You go to Psalm 147. He prepares the earth for the rain and makes the grass grow. You go to Hebrews 1, 3. He upholds the universe by the power, by the word of His power. All life, all creation is dependent upon God at inception and dependent upon God to uphold and sustain life. God alone is the giver of life. That is where life comes from. You will never, ever convince me that sometime in a the past there was a stray lightning bolt that hit a cesspool of sludge, and therefore through this cosmic mishap involving two non-living things, life sprung out of it. I can go get you a piece of plywood from Home Depot and a two-by-four and say, make the tree. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's impossible. You cannot take non-living things and create something that is alive. Right? And here's the thing. 
You go through and you read, you, you, you type in, how did life begin? And it may take you to the National Science Foundation, who, who actually, when you read the article, you get to the end of the article and you realize they have no clue. This is the opening sentence in their article. Or, or excuse me, the concluding sentence in the first paragraph. Listen, here's their question. How did non-living molecules that covered the young earth combine to form the very first life form? There it is. How did non-living things make life? You continue to read the article, and this is where it gets fun. Because they say, well, maybe. Well, most likely. Well, perhaps. And my favorite quote, there is no direct evidence, end quote. That's a really long article for them to say, we don't know. Because we can't explain in all our wisdom and all our knowledge how to take non-living entities and create life. They can't do it. They can't explain it. They can't create it. Which means what? It means that man then and life is dependent on an external source. And our external source is God of Scripture. Right? Our second distinctive. We saw the first one. Here's the second one again in Genesis, but this time chapter 2, verse 7. Then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. There it is. There's the answer to their question, but they don't want to go there. They want to try to figure out how to take non-living entities and create life, and they can't. Where the answer is right here. God is the giver of life. Nowhere else in the creation week do we see this happening. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Genesis 2-7 is a stunningly beautiful verse. Because in Genesis 2-7, what it tells us is that God bent over face to face with the image, with the man that was created in his image and breathed his breath into the nostrils of Adam. So the very first breath Adam took was whose breath? It was God's. Do you know who the very first breath is that we take is? It's God's. Because what was true in Genesis 2-7 is still true today. Were it not for God breathing life into us, we would not have life. The very first breath you took was God's breath that He breathed into you to give you life. Because life derives from God. It comes from Him. It flows from His life. And David knew this well. Psalm 139, which was our study last Sunday in Sunday school, but bringing it today, Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. Listen to what David says. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your books were written, excuse me, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I know that we go to Psalm 139 
to discuss the sanctity of life, and we do that for very good reason. But I want you to think about something for a minute. David wrote this psalm 3,000 years ago with absolutely no scientific understanding of what we know today about life. There was no ultrasound, right? Y'all know that, right? 3,000 years ago, there's no ultrasound. There's no electricity. So they couldn't have an ultrasound. So David isn't looking, right? We've all seen that, that, that picture of the, the sperm and, and, and the egg. David didn't have that picture. David couldn't tell you about how a child gestates in the womb. David has no idea. But this is what David says. He says, before whatever I was, before there was an unformed substance of me, whatever that was, before that, you could see me. When we were an unformed substance, and this is one of those questions I've, I've thought, what were we before we were we became a child? What were we before we became an embryo? What were we? I don't know. But what Psalm 139 says, whatever it is we were, God knew me. God didn't know me at the moment of conception. Before conception, God knew me. God knew you. And he marked out your days for you. And he formed your inner parts. He knitted you together. God did that. And science will never be able to do that. Science will never answer the question, how did two non-living, how did non-living whatever come together to form life? They will never, ever find the answer to that question. Because they're looking in the wrong place. Scripture has the answer. Our life flows from God's life. And it is still true today. And this where believers, we need to be firm on this. And we need to be firm and clear in stating unequivocally, but as Peter calls us, with compassion and gentleness, that life begins at conception. If you define life as beginning at any other time than conception, you must. It becomes incumbent upon you to explain why one minute before that was not life. You have to do that. If you say life begins at conception, you have no issues. Right? But we, we've been kind of for 50 years told that there becomes a time when life becomes life. Right? We, we talk about when someone is pregnant, we talk about trimesters. How many of you know that trimesters was not derived from a medical association? Do you, do you know that? Do you know where we get trimesters? In the Roe v. Wade decision. Where the justice went and discussed with the Mayo Clinic and talked to some of the doctors there and came back with this trimester framework. Up until then, if you went to a doctor before then, they, they didn't talk about trimesters. I mean, it's convenient. I'll give them that. But this idea of trimesters doesn't come from, from biology or from obstetricians. It came from the ruling on Roe v. Wade. Because Roe v. Wade was faced with a question that said, how do we justify this at one point in the womb but not another point? Because they have to answer why one minute before it was not. 
right? This, it, it, it's, it's amazing. Listen to this. This is in the Roe v. Wade decision. It says, quote, for the stage subsequent to viability, the state in promoting its interest in the potentiality of human life, end quote. You see what they did there? They're talking about a stage after when there's a potential for life. Okay, great. Okay. Explain to me what happens on second trimester, day one, that changed from the end, from the last day of trimester one, that went from not a potential life to a potential life. What work of science happened that all of a sudden now this life has potential? You, 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 can't, you can't do it. They can't answer that question. And so one of the stunning things that has happened in the past 50 years is you see this progression where they are saying that the beginning of life is moved further and further and further and further away from conception. Because now we're talking about potential life instead of life. And as you move it further and further away from conception, it also leads to a subjective reality or subjective truth about life. Where life now becomes subjective to the woman who is pregnant. And, and I, I don't mean that, please, I, I'm, I'm a guy, I just can't be pregnant, okay? So this, I don't want this to sound harsh to women, it's just I can't be pregnant, okay? But if the woman is happy and wants the, ch- the child that's in her womb, it's a baby. But if she's not and, and she wants to seek an abortion, it becomes a fetus. Because we've now made life subjective, because, again, we moved it away from the point of conception. The farther you get away from that, the farther you get away from life. And the farther you get away from defining that and the farther you get away from life, there has been a change in the argument through a subtle difference in terminology where they are not talking about when does life begin, but when does personhood or human dignity begin. That's an insidious question. It really is because it goes back to the point that that means that there are some people who do not have personhood. And not only that, that question now moves it from, outside, from inside the womb to outside the womb. Because if a person is not a person, you end up with a life unworthy of life. And I know what some people are going to say, well, Gary, that, just, that sounds like a slippery slope argument. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to realize we slipped off the slope and we're at the bottom of the canyon. We've been off the slope for a long time. Listen to this. Earlier this year, the New York Times ran an article that I can't remember the title of it, but basically the idea was, when when, when does life start? That was the basic idea. Subsequently, you can imagine you, you write a letter, you write something, publish something in the newspaper, you get letters to the editor, Right? This was a letter written to the editor of New York Times from a professor emeritus at, I believe it was Columbia, at Columbia University, who taught in their medical department. Okay? Listen to what he says. He's not even talking about life. He's talking about what conditions need to be met to be human. And he attaches two conditions. Condition number one, quote, an awareness through our senses that we exist and that we exist within a world of objects. That is just an updated Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Okay? 
Listen to the second one. Quote, The ability of the brain to use the information from our senses to create ideas and make predictions about how to survive in that world. End quote. Then he states, quote, What this tells us is that a fetus cannot perceive most sensations. The first attribute of being human, not being alive, but being human, until at least six months after fertilization, the ability to formulate ideas. The second attribute of humans probably does not incur until after birth, when the newborn's brain begins to correlate all of the sensations into a coherent experience of its surroundings. End quote. It's that second part that I just find utterly insidious. Because what we know is a three-month-old cannot do that. And so now all of a sudden this three-year-old, instead of being a life, is not even a human. We know people who have been in car accidents who cannot do that, and all of a sudden this person is not a, a life. They're not even human. We have family members, you have family members, people who deal and struggle with Alzheimer's and, 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 and deterioration of the brain that cannot do that. And all of a sudden, it's not that they don't have life, it's that they're not human. Do you wonder now why not only that, that there's an uptick in assisted suicide? Right? Because they're not human. And it's gone really, when you look at assisted suicide, it's gone from you have a, a right to die to now you have an obligation to die. Why? Because they have said now that that person, that life is not a person. That they don't have any dignity. That their life isn't sacred. And just on a side note, this impacts everything in between. How many shootings has Winston had in the past two weeks? If you don't view the person that, that you're mad at as a, as, as a human, as a person, as a life, then it doesn't matter if you shoot them. How, how about, and, and really, this implies to everything. You see someone who is homeless. That person is still a life worth dignity. It impacts how we treat people who are homeless. It impacts how we treat people going through difficult times. It impacts how we treat everybody because if we don't look at them and see the image of God and see the life that God gave them, we don't see a human. And if you don't see that person as a life and as a human, it justifies anything that you want to do to them. And it's scary and it's frightening. Because we know the depravity of man's heart. Again, not a Second Amendment argument. I'm not arguing that. But we just had another mass killing in California. Why? Because the person who pulled the trigger didn't see those people as lives created in God's image. We're dealing with the fallout and, 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 and just the utter... I don't have words for it with Skyler. Why? Because in that moment, he wasn't even looked at as a human. This is where it leads. This is where it leads. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we have got to stand up and say the only thing that will combat this 
is the worldview that says, no, no. Life is sacred. Life has a sanctity to it because we are created in God's own image. In the image of God, he created us male and female. And hold to that, that biblical truth that from the moment of conception, you have life and now we must argue that you have personhood as well. You don't have a potential life. You don't have a potential person. You have life and you have a person. And we have to stand on that truth. And we cannot retreat one single inch. But finally this morning, I want to end where we started. The sanctity of life is a testimony to God's love. 1 John 4, verse 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever has been born of God and knows God, or whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God has made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son in the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You read those verses, and you're reminded that when God breathed life into us, He created us then with a purpose. To know Him and worship Him. Creating us in His image, breathing His life into us, gives us that ability. Again, the rest of creation does not. It absolutely doesn't. Creation does recognize its Creator, but it does not recognize its creator and be able to have that personal knowledge of God and that personal relationship with God that we can. And 1 John, again, reminds us that that relationship was broken because of our sin. There was nothing that we could do, but it reminds us that that God loves us. That, That God made a way. That God has a particular and peculiar love for his people that are created in his image. that is not received by the rest of creation. It is a steadfast love. It is a steadfast love that prompted Christ to step out of heaven and take on the veil of humanity. It is a steadfast love that kept Christ on the cross. It's a steadfast love that he rose on the third day so that through his resurrection we we can be raised from the dead again. Or we can be raised from the dead in the future. It is is a steadfast love that through his life, death, and resurrection, that we can have forgiveness of our sins. It's a steadfast love that gives us life and joy and gives it to us abundantly here and now. At the same time, it is a steadfast love that gives us hope for the future. That we will live with him forever and ever And ever. We have a sanctity of life. Humanity, male and female, has a sanctity of life because we are the only recipients in all of God's creation of that steadfast love. 
And the more that this truth is proclaimed, the more that this truth is explained, the more that this truth is understand or understood, then the more society will realize just how sacred human life is. They will understand that there is a sanctity of life from conception to natural end that cannot ever be taken away because it was in God's steadfast love that He created us from an unformed substance. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. He knew us. He knows us now. And praise God, even though He knows us now, He still sent Christ to die for our sins. So that there is not a sin in this world that God's grace and God's mercy cannot forgive. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.